Root, the podcast that digs beneath the surface to understand how scientific publications are created. In each episode, we take a paper from the literature and talk about the story behind the science with one of the authors. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. And in this episode, we talk to Carolyn Lawrence Dill, who is an associate professor at Iowa State University. We discuss a paper from her grad school days that has a great backstory about how to bring a large number of people together to agree on a common system of nomenclature. It turns out that it's both important and challenging to do, and we had a great conversation touching on egos, politics, and grad student projects. The paper is A Standardized Kinesin Nomenclature by Lawrence et al. in the Journal of Cell Biology, 2004. And with that, let's get to the conversation. We are, we are very pleased to have Carolyn Lawrence Dill uh, on the Taproot podcast. Welcome, Carolyn. Just to give you guys a little bit of background about Carolyn's uh, history, she got a BA in biology from Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, uh, a master's from Texas Tech, a PhD from the University of Georgia in Athens, and then did a postdoc at Iowa State before moving to the United States Department of Agriculture's Agricultural Research Service, also located at Iowa State, where for almost 10 years, she was the lead scientist behind the Maze GDB website, which is the uh, organism-specific genetics database for maize, uh, or corn, as we might call it. And in 2014, she moved over back over to the Iowa State side, uh, where she became an associate professor in the Department of Genetics Development and Cell Biology. So with that, Welcome, Carolyn. It's great to have you on the podcast. And maybe we'll we'll just start with you giving us uh, a short introduction to what the paper is about and its conclusions. So what kinesin is, kinesin is a microtubule-based motor protein. And uh, kinesins grab onto some cargo and walk around in a cell, and they move cargoes different places. Those cargoes might be chromosomes. They might be uh, any kind of other cellular component, like a, a vesicle or something like that. They put things where they belong. Many of those proteins uh, can be classified phylogenetically, and then you can paint onto that phylogenetic tree what the known functions are. And once you do that, you can start to predict that other things that are in that phylogenetic clade might have the same function. So that was our purpose in putting together this nomenclature was to describe to a bunch of researchers that were really not phylogeneticists, they were not evolutionary biologists, it described to them a better way to organize their family members to predict what it is that they do and to call them by names that had some kind of meaning and didn't distract them by uh, having a bunch of information associated that was untrue. So as a background for what kinesins are, they're fairly large proteins. They have a conserved domain that interacts with microtubules. You've probably seen videos of this. You, you can watch as kinesins attached to some kind of cargo are walking along a microtubule by binding and unbinding and taking individual steps with those motor domains that bind to the microtubule. The nice thing about that motor domain being so well conserved is that it means that across really large distances of evolution, you can go ahead and take sequences and align them 
and they line up reasonably well. Uh, outside of that motor domain, very little of the sequence is conserved because they've adapted so many different functions. Fantastic. So, and this paper basically is your proposed naming scheme for the kinesins. Right. And, and, lays out, and it lays out the criteria you use to come up with the naming scheme and how you think it should be applied. Is that a, a that short summary? That's exactly right. So let me give you an example, uh, a couple of examples of why we thought that this was necessary. So people were naming kinesins based on function, and that would be maybe this is a chromokinesin. This thing is going to have perhaps like a zinc finger, and it grabs onto chromosomes and moves chromosomes around, right? Um, there are others with other types of binding domains, and they were called based on what it was they did. There were other families that uh, they would give names based on where the motor domain existed in the sequence. So if the motor domain was in the middle, it might be called an I-type kinesin because the motor domain was internal. And that had nothing to do with its function. There were C-type kinesins that the motor was near the C-terminus. The issue is that if you looked at where those motor domains were and you looked across the evolutionary tree and you looked at um, where those motor domains were versus what the function was, placement of the motor domain had almost nothing to do with how that kinesin functioned. And people were starting to look at things like where that motor domain is to make their hypotheses and start to test them even though that was not a good marker for what the function was going to be. So our purpose for putting together this, this not just, it's not just a nomenclature, it's a nomenclature, but it also defines a methodology for how you would name some newly characterized kinesin that involves doing some very basic evolutionary biology because it was so clear to us that um, evolution was a better predictor of function than these high-level sequence assignments like where the motor domain lay. So, I mean, it, it seems to me like that is a, such, a, such an interesting and, and valid reason to get together and do this, but what seems like would be so hard would be to actually organize it and to get buy-in from a really broad community. Because what I can see from the author list is that this is not just plant biologists, this is plant and animal biologists. I think maybe the cytoskeletal community is maybe better at this than other communities are, but getting plant and animal people to even be aware of what is happening in the other group seems to be a real challenge. Can you just tell us how you became the first author on a paper that went about uh, solving this problem? Just sort of tell the story. Yeah. So part of the reason that I'm the first author is because um, I was a grad student that was struggling with trying to put together a phylogeny of kinesins. My reason for putting together the phylogeny was because I wanted to figure out which maize kinesins might move chromosomes either from the kinetochore or something that would bind to chromosome arms, but that was my focus. And the place that I was working as a grad student was the University of Georgia, which has um, a, a real reputation for good evolutionary biology, and that was really uh, the perspective that I was taking in trying to figure out what some good targets would be for my, my research in that area. Most of the kinesin literature comes not just out of animal, but out of animal models for human disease. So if you look at the author list, in fact, the only plant biologists uh, in the author list, this 22 authors, were three of us. 
And in fact, the group of people working on kinesin at that time, because they were primarily medical biologists, they thought it was absolutely crazy to have some graduate student who was in what was at that time a botany department complaining to them that they didn't know how to classify their protein. <laughs> they were not impressed. The way that this happened, um, at the time, I thought that it was a real drawback that we were such outsiders to doing this work. And then slowly but surely, as I started contacting people and talking with them, within that community, it was clear that many people felt like this is an issue, it's an issue we know about, but there was a lot of digging in. And to have somebody that was entirely outside of that group of people pushing to get it done turns out to have been something that uh, probably was key to getting it done because um, in this situation I was an outsider to everyone in that community. It was a lot of begging you said? I didn't catch the word. Well so there was a lot of calling up and emailing and lots of different ways of contacting people. I would say some of the most uh, entertaining interactions were by way of email because somehow when you're not talking to someone directly they feel like they can tell you what they really think. A couple of different people in that group, one of them told me that even going down this path, I was trying to impose my thoughts on the group that I was an evil imperialist. There was one person that ended up being uh, a co-author who emailed me at one point to let me know that he would rather use my toothbrush than my nomenclature. <laughs> wow, and you're a graduate student. I mean, it's so hard to imagine being a graduate student and persevering. I mean, some of the names on this list are very um, well-known and powerful scientists. Like, can you describe what kept you going ahead and not just drop it and, and let them work it out? Well, what, what really kept me going were the few individuals in that group who on the side very quietly would call me up and say, oh, please get this done. So you had both sides. You had this group of people that were, leave us alone, we know what we're doing. And then you had this other group of people simultaneously making contact that said, something's got to give here, help us figure it out. My first idea on how to make a nomenclature, which everyone there universally hated, we would use a type specimen nomenclature. I was coming from a botany perspective, right? So I figured whatever the first protein was that had been characterized, we would just take that name and any given family, we would just name it based on the first one that was characterized. And then it turned out there were just, there was infighting and wars over which one was actually characterized first versus published first. And I realized that that was just not gonna work. But it turned out to have probably been a very good thing to have proposed something that was universally hated so that other people came up with ideas that they could go along, get along with. Can you step back maybe and tell us when did you start this process? So this is this, uh, you know, this was published in 2004 yeah. uh, in October. When, when did you say and start contacting people saying you wanted to do this? It was about 2002 that I started contacting people and, and mainly I was contacting people to find out from them, how can we do this? And the answer was that no one really knew how to do it. And so I just started aggregating names. Everybody I called up, I said, who else should be involved here? And as you can tell from the author list and from the group of people that endorsed the nomenclature, the list got really long. So uh, we pulled together all of these people and came up with a number of different ways that we could name these families. 
and had a meeting of people face-to-face -face who gave their idea of what a reasonable nomenclature should be. Some people wanted to name them one, two, three, four, five. I had my specimen idea. There were others who had, uh, in addition to myself, who had written uh, papers that were phylogenies of kinesin that they wanted to use, uh, the names they had assigned in their phylogenies. So we got together, and when we got together at this cell biology meeting, it was a group of, oh, maybe a hundred different researchers, and it was generally agreed that, yes, we should go down this path of creating a nomenclature, but that we wanted it to be community-driven and that everyone should be able to give their input, so we put up a website. The kinds of things that I'm describing here, that's kind of how we do it now when we're trying to come up with standards and methods and nomenclatures and we're trying to do community organization but at that time putting up a website where people could have a blog in effect have all of their comments seen by everyone else it was a novel concept and so that this nomenclature that you guys came up with in 2004 it's still in use yes so, uh, it, it, and it's still cited constantly in fact people use the names of their uh, of their kinesin families, sometimes even in titles of paper papers. For example, there's a paper out there now that's called Lucky 13 because their uh, their kinesin was in family number 13. So people have um, even gotten a little bit silly with it. Yeah, it, I mean, this paper has been cited, at least according to Google Scholar, around 600 times. So clearly, this is one of those, I think, really great examples where you got a lot of blowback of was this needed, but because you were right, in retrospect, it's obvious this was needed. People have been using it, and it's, it was incredibly effective. So. Well, and I suspect that if we had not done what was at least two years of meetings and discussions, I mean, there was a lot of perseverance and tenacity really behind this paper. Um, because of that, that I think that's why we got where we did. If we had published it as my personal favorite type specimen nomenclature, no one would be using it. But in fact, what we did was to come up with four or five different nomenclatures that we thought were reasonable, and then the community voted. And before the community voted, everyone had to agree that whatever the outcome, they would go with it. How close was the vote? Not very. So this was like a very clear, una uh, not unanimous, but highly preferred method to the yes. other ones. So the, the names that were used, so our, our names were just kinesin, dash, and then an Arabic number. The ones that got voted the most for, this standardized name that we used, it's the one that had never been published before. And the others that were being voted on were primarily ones that had previously been published with other phylogenies. And I don't know that this is true, but my suspicion is that because it was equally disliked by everyone, <laughs> it worked. It doesn't favor anybody to do it that way. It's sort of starting fresh, which is a, an, um, an impediment even to everyone. Yes, that's well put. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between the authors and the group of people who agreed to use the nomenclature where did what was the defining split between those people in terms of whether they were considered an author or or someone who agrees to use it 
Well, the authors are the people that really engaged. And in fact, uh, they're the group of people that put forth ideas for nomenclatures. They're the ones that helped to uh, organize resources and wrangle people. And the researchers that are at the end that include all of the authors plus a lot of other people that work on kinesis, they're the group of people that if you at that time did a PubMed search with kinesin, or if you um, were talking to the people that were authors, they were ones who were really active in that area, but they had themselves not engaged in this problem, in trying to figure out how to sort out the nomenclature. In fact, many of them, when contacted, said, I'm so glad that you're doing this. Please keep me posted and I'll use it. So they were mainly the people that were enthusiastic about this problem getting solved, but they really didn't want to have anything to do with making the sausage. They just wanted to eat it. Okay, so there was, there, there's not a, lot of, not a lot of people who felt like they should have been authors in that list, and, and there was, there, that didn't cause a lot of strife upon which list you were on. No, and I would say that the reason for that is because it was, uh, no one was excluded. If someone had wanted to be an author and they had engaged, they absolutely would have been involved at that level. So it, it was a really open situation to anyone's input. I kind of want to go back to this part where you're a graduate student. Like, I was I'm really fascinated. the same thing. It's just looking back on this, Carolyn, it just blows my mind that that was something you were driving as a grad student. How did your advisor respond to that? Well, so my advisor was Kelly Daw, and you can see him as the second author. Kelly said that he wanted to be the second author, not the last author, because he didn't do it. And that to me was always kind of funny. It was my idea, and I can honestly say that Mainly the reason that I went down this path was because as I was doing my own research, I got really annoyed. For almost anything I have ever done that was useful, it was because I got annoyed or I got mad. And I was like, okay, I will solve this. And truly, I think part of what happened there was I didn't know any better. I didn't realize that this thing I was walking into was kind of crazy. It's like the power of naivete. Exactly. That is exactly it. I think it was because I, I didn't know enough to be, you know, thoroughly impressed by all of these truly impressive researchers. Um, because they were outside of my own field, I felt like I could interact with them directly. And, and I must say there are a few of them who even ended up being authors who were, I, I shouldn't say angry. So they were... Um, Unsupportive? Well, that, that's, yes, that's true. I guess the, the thing that they really were was that they were surprised that some graduate student thought that they should contact them directly. Wow. So they, 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 there was a protocol that they felt you were violating. Exactly. Foolishly marched in and said, this isn't working. We got to fix it. So Carolyn, is this, would you characterize yourself, this as being a, a standard um, approach for you to... Uh, get angry about the way something's done and then to figure out how to fix it with as much consensus as possible. <laughs> Have you done that like repeatedly throughout your career or was this the one time that you learned your lesson not to do it again? I would say the former. So anytime that I get something that is really useful done, it is normally because I realize there is an issue that needs to be solved and I march right in and try to do something about it. 
Well, in fact, Ivan might be able to comment on that better than me. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, I mean, I think this is, uh, I would say, having known Carolyn now for close to probably nine years or something like that. Uh, this is sort of a hallmark of Carolyn doing this. And I think, I think it's, it's a, these tend to be very valuable things for communities, but it also, by the fact that you are speaking up and saying this is a problem, frequently you are the one who then gets put upon to be organizing the solution. Yes, uh, and, and, and I know it's a, it's a hard lesson I've had to learn is that um, I can, I get mad about a lot of problems and I will complain about them to, to close friends. But if you're really going to, I've learned that if I need to do that too much, I, I will just end up taking on too many responsibilities and it gets bogged down. Is that right. something that you worry about, uh, Carolyn? Uh, oh, I wouldn't say worry about, I would say suffer from. <laughs> <laughs> There are a number of times that I've pointed out that something needed to be done and everyone smiles and they say, we are supportive of you doing that. So yes, um, that is absolutely something that it, it has both defined what it is that I've done and I have suffered from it. But I guess I suffer with a smile on my face when it turns out that you end up getting 600 citations on a three page paper. I guess I'm, I'm really interested in this concept that gene names have such an emotional and contentious that they engender these really strong feelings from people and that you that it really seems like most of the work of this paper was working with people and not at all the coming up with the naming scheme the naming scheme seems very logical and but my guess is that it wasn't that hard to do it's really all the negotiation around what you're going to name a gene. Uh, so, so to be clear, we named gene families. We didn't name genes. And the reason is exactly because of what you just said. There's all this emotion around, I characterized this gene in this species, and it's mine, and I named it, and it's my kid. Mm -hmm. so if you look at uh, the description of the nomenclature, it is about referring to a particular gene as a member of a family. And what we named were those families so that you could continue to name your kid, your favorite gene, this gene that you love, whatever it is you want to. And th so there are two reasons. There's first that reason. The other reason is because when you look at any given model species, they sometimes have really arcane rules about how you name a gene. So in maize, we have uh, methods for how we name genes. When you look at mouse, mouse has a nomenclature that you have to follow, the same is true for human, etc. So we really wanted to stay as far away as we humanly could, both from the fact that people loved whatever it was that they had characterized and the fact that many of these model organism species already had their own nomenclatures and nomenclature committees. This podcast is, we're trying to, one of the things we're trying to tease out here is sort of nuggets of advice for upcoming scientists who may find themselves in this situation. So I, I guess I want to start with like a very frank question of if you were talking to a grad student or let's say you were talking to young Carolyn as a grad student, 
would you advise them to do this? Was this, I mean, this, this worked, this ultimately this worked out really well for you, but it sounds like it was not without a fair amount of trouble. Maybe it's because you had a great advisor that you were able to get through that, or maybe it's because you are tenacious and have a certain, I don't give an F uh, attitude. Uh, but is, <laughs> are there, uh, under what circumstances would you advise a grad student to re, to, to follow this path that you did? I think that in grad school, life is really hard. And if you find something that you feel very passionately about, it makes it a little bit less hard because you feel so passionately about solving that problem. And I guess my, my primary suggestion for people that are in grad school, people that are wanting to go into science, is that if this is what you're passionate about, it won't be quite so hard. It won't seem so onerous because it will be so fulfilling because you believe in it, you love it, you think you're doing good things. So I think it was hard in retrospect, but I also had great fun with it. So I got to meet all of these amazing people that I had only just read their papers. And it, it turns out that even to this day, the group of people that are on this paper, if I call them up, they still know who I am. So in some ways, you know, I took these people that were big names and I annoyed them enough that they remember me. <laughs> I didn't quite follow. Do you still work on kinesins? I don't, um, but I still get asked to. And without uh, exception, I always say no. <laughs> I'm done here. I keep thinking about this sort of from the thesis advisor's point of view, right? Like if I had a student who was putting a bunch of effort into something, I mean, I get that it got a lot of um, citations, but it's not a it's not your conventional contribution to the field right so i just think it takes sort of a special kind of mentor to appreciate that spending two years on on emails back and forth with people working in the animal system is actually going to be worth it and i i don't know i just find that really sort of extraordinary that kelly made that possible for you and that you just barreled ahead with it i think it's really neat yeah, I think so too. I agree with you. Um, Kelly told me at one point that the reason he was able to do that was because uh, Mike Freeling did it for him. Uh -huh. Something that was outside of the scope of what Mike Freeling's lab was working on when he was in that lab. And Kelly's perspective was that once in a while you will get a grad student that is passionate about something and they're going to solve it and you need to let them. Um, it was a little bit easier for him to let me do it because I, I was at the University of Georgia with my own money. So they had a training grant that the money came to me and I chose to be in his lab. So in some ways, I had more freedom because of that to do something that was within the scope of what that training grant was, but it, it wasn't something that was dependent on the topics of his grants. So I think both of those things worked for me. But I think there's a, a, a bigger point to make here that goes to, and maybe this will string together a, a, the last podcast we, we recorded with Sophia, and is that there's lots of ways to make impact, and we really need to do a much better job of incentivizing and rewarding people who are doing something a little bit outside our conventional 
way of doing things. I mean, this is clearly an incredibly valuable thing to have done and that people in this, you know, very broad community found use for. And, and maybe we as, as advisors need to be a little bit more flexible in thinking about how do we yeah. measure that, that, that impact that this is going to have? And is this a worthwhile thing is, is, you know, do we, instead of having write one review paper and two primary science papers, we nice. need to think about, you need, you want to have one primary science paper, one unconventional way of making impact and what, you know, and, and a review or as, I don't know what the, the, there's no magic perfect combination, but that's the kind of attitude that we need to come in with to, to start rewarding these things. Yeah, I agree. I think it's hard to tell at the very beginning of something like this, whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. That's true with every project though, right? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But you know, you, you need, I think as a student, you need somebody that's willing to let you try out 12 different things if six might work. Yeah. And that, I, that to me is a big difference between the way it is that uh, Kelly treated me in his lab versus how I saw a number of different professors treating their students. There is this boilerplate like Ivan was saying, write a review and two uh, primary science papers, right? Um, yeah. that, that is a very good recipe. If a student can follow it, they're going to do fine. But having a little bit of freedom, you get maybe something very unique done. I agree. Maybe to wrap up, Carolyn, I, the final like big picture question I would ask you is when you're thinking about coordinating lots of people into these multidisciplinary or multi-lab multi groups, what are the what are the, the keys that you think about if you were going to start another one of these projects to really make it successful uh, going forward? Well, I, I'd say that you have to document the entire time what it is you're doing and who it is you've interacted with so that when somebody says, are you talking to all the right people, you can say, here's who I'm talking to, who else should I involve? You also, if you're trying to organize something like this, you can't be married to a particular outcome. It doesn't work very well to start pushing people down some path that you think is the right one. You have to be very open to the idea that it may be somebody else's solution that's the one that's going to work for that community. And then the last thing I would say is that you do have to have a good bit of tenacity and you have to be really um, self-motivated and think a lot of your own worth because when you walk into somebody else's community and you start telling them what it is that they're doing wrong, they're going to throw eggs and tomatoes and anything else they can come up with because here you are a stranger. So I, I think those are really the, the primary things that when you're trying to do community organizing and communication types of research, those are the primary suggestions that I have to others from, from my own experiences in this area. Um, I'll make one last comment, and that is that uh, people talk about what impact is and how it is to measure impact. I didn't have any idea when we put together this particular paper what its impact was going to be beyond perhaps making people able to communicate with each other. But when I realized that you could have 
such an effect on so many different researchers' work that you could improve how it is that they communicate um, and the hypotheses that they're testing. It was like I had tried some wonderful drug for the first time. The idea that you could do something like this and it's not just like you're publishing your own research, you're affecting the research of everybody around you, that was cool. And that really has changed my approach to doing biology because it seemed to me like an area that I could make good impact. Well, that seems like a perfect way to end the podcast. Uh, so thank you so much, Carolyn, for that. Uh, as we're about to wrap up, can you tell us uh, where people can reach you? I can be found on Twitter as IA Cornflake, all one word. <laughs> Liz, can you tell people where they can reach you? <laughs> sure. Uh, not nearly as uh, entertaining. You can find me um, on Twitter at e at e Haswell. And you can find me on Twitter at Baxter Twee, T-W-I. And if you want to email Liz and I about the podcast, the email address is taproot at plantae.org. And with that, Carolyn, this was fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. The Taproot is produced for Plantae by Melanie Binder and Mary Williams and edited by Tasneen Bufafel. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.